Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Martin Puris. Martin, how are you? I'm fine. Good. How are you? I'm very good. Glad to be speaking to you. And we were just joking about how time flies because I believe that we met when you were, I think, considering investment in my first company. I don't know how many people who listen to my podcast know that my first company, why I left graduate school after just getting my PhD, was to start an advertising company or an advertising media company. Yeah. And in the advertising world, I think your name is like, it's got this rarefied, you know, you're one of the big ones. People are easily deluded. <laughs> <laughs> And you, you actually came to my, I think where we met face-to-face was when you came to my first gallery show in this little closet, a solo show in Manhattan in the East Village. But then we recontacted again. You spoke to the Columbia Business School Alumni Club recently. And ostensibly, it might have, I think someone, if they kind of squinted, they might have thought you were talking about advertising, but it got much bigger. It was about creativity in general and society and, and something much more general. So before you start talking, I'm going to read a bit from your bio. Might be a little dry, but it's pretty big stuff. So Martin Puris founded his agency, Amarade and Puris, together with Ralph Amarade in 1973. The two worked together on award-winning work for Fiat and Carl Ally Incorporated. Uh, his classic line for BMW, the ultimate driving machine. You, you created that. Still yeah. defines the luxury car today, over 30 years later. You wrote The Antidote for Civilization for Club Med, a campaign that changed the look and feel of the whole travel category. Your campaign for UPS... We run the tightest ship in the shipping business, reinforce the brand's commitment to efficiency. I mean, this is part of regular vocabulary. <laughs> Could you give us a bit of background on, on what did you do before you started your first agency, if that's not going too far back? Oh, it's going a long way back. <laughs> I had in mind that I was going to be a, a stand-up comic in, uh, in an era of Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul, and it was, a, it was an era of political comics. And uh, I thought that's what I wanted to do. And I actually did it for about a year and a half and found that I hated it. <laughs> I really, I really hated it and had no idea what I was going to do after that because that's what I was, that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I was headed for or trying to do. Serendipitously, uh, a friend of mine who ran a um, production company said, uh, how would you like to do some commercials over the weekend? And I said, fine, uh-huh. what does it pay? And I did them. And I don't remember who I did them for. It was some dairy. But they liked them, and I did a few more. And I found that I really enjoyed what I was doing. And this was in a time when the advertising business was uh, a wonderful place to be. Great work was being done. Uh, before the investment banker was invented, it was a pretty good paying field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of brilliant people starting to change the business. Uh, you know, Bill Bernbach was the was the John the Baptist of the great uh, golden age of advertising. And I thought, wow, I mean, this is something I think I want to do. So, so I'm hearing a mix of, of both, you said it paid well, but also the, the people and the, not both, but all three of like the people and the, the creativity. It sounds like you really enjoyed yeah, it was extraordinary. It was it was a, every business, every thing, uh, every country perhaps has its golden age. Uh, it comes for what reason people don't really know, but it's a you know by default or by serendipity, a, a group of people come together and start something wonderful, and uh, you know it happened in this country in the beginning. And uh, Warren Bennis, who was a professor at Harvard and uh, MIT, I think. Anyway, uh, he wrote a book years and years and years ago called Organizing Genius. 
and it talks about this. It's a thin book, but it's really worth reading. You can still buy it online. Uh, if you want the hardcover version, it's now going for about $900. But if you want the paperback, it's a paperback price. Anyway, it's worth reading. Uh, you can read it on a weekend easily if you're a pretty decent reader. It's the best book still that I've read on this phenomenon of how what he, he called them great groups. And uh, he used examples like IBM in the beginning and Apple, in the first Apple before Stephen left and then came back, and several others. The uh, the Atomic Energy, uh, whatever that was called, project, you know, in Manhattan Project. Manhattan Project. Huh. And he out, he outlines who those people were, how they came together, how it happened that the peculiar uh, amalgamation of talent and personality created things that none of them could ever have done on their own. The unfortunate part is he also chronicles how they eventually die. And, and how they die is as simple as how they began. It can be somebody gets a divorce, somebody becomes an alcoholic in that little group. Changing the dynamics of of why it works, which is, you know, mysterious at best, and then they die. So I think, you know, when I got into the advertising business, it was something everybody wanted to be in. People were dropping out of medical school to become copywriters. It was just a glamorous place to be. The work was tremendous, just tons and tons and tons of it. Big ideas, big thinkers, big characters. This is from the, let's say, early, it began in the early 60s, early 60s to mid-60s, and lasted until probably late 80s, dribbling into the early 90s. And then we have what we have now, which is a fairly sad situation and a kind of a desert for ideas. Did you know when you got into it that you would start taking a leadership role in it and, and being a major figure? Yes, yes and no. I thought that I had uh, ability that people seemed to recognize, and so I, I kind of rose pretty quickly in the advertising business, which you could do in those days because it, it it really really centered on the ideas and the talent rather than quarterly earnings and the holding companies and everything that happened in the advertising business. And uh, I always knew I wanted to work for myself. My father was a pediatrician, and uh, he died when I was sixteen, and so I don't I don't remember a lot. And he was a sort of austere figure <laughs> in the house, and uh, he I don't think he ever understood me. But uh, one of the things he said that I remember is that you're better off owning a hot dog stand than working for a company. <laughs> and it kind of stuck in my head. So you started a really big hot dog stand. I started a big hot dog stand. And then I also went to, I went to, I grew up in Chicago. I went to a a private school up in Evanston that they used to bus me to from from the near north side called the National College of Education. It was a teacher's college, uh, but they also had kindergarten through 12th grade. And it was in, it was started by two old, old maid ladies, Claire Bell and Edna Dean Baker, who invented progressive education. And that's that's where I went for the first eight years of my life. Well, more than that, I guess eighth grade, and it probably ruined me for <laughs> for, the, for the rest of my life because it was really progressive education. If you were bored in second grade, you could just get up and leave, <laughs> do, do something else. So, so that stuck. That that ethos. Oh my God, it stuck. I when I, when we moved to the suburbs, and I entered school, 
public school the, the very first day. <laughs> I got bored and got up and left. Oh, no, asking permission. You didn't know. Did you know what you were doing or did you just? I didn't know that I had to. I didn't have to. You just, if you were bored, you did something else. It was a terrible example. <laughs> I almost can't help but jump to what you're alluding to about the how things are today and how things have changed with the quarterly earnings. And I feel like there's a change that happened in education. When I think, like I try to teach progressive, I try to teach a project-based learning and it's teaching a whole different set of skills than factual recall and this little, what you can you know fill in bubbles on. But the, the whole world, I mean, certainly the United States is moving much more toward teaching to the test. And the, the similarity between teaching the test and quarterly earnings seems like very strong to me. And I almost want to jump to there, to now, because that, to the talk you gave, uh, or to the subject of, of what you talked about to the business school. Although, could you share a story of maybe one of the coming up with like, how did the antidote for civilization come about or the ultimate driving machine? If that, if I haven't jumped too far ahead. No, that's an interesting, the, uh, club med campaign, the antidote campaign is actually in many ways, it's the thing I'm proudest of having done. And I'll tell you why, because it was the toughest problem uh, you always have to start with the product uh, or the idea. Everything begins with the idea. BMW had a very distinct idea. They didn't know how to articulate it, but they had made this, you know, wonderful car, uh, you know, a, uh, an unobtrusive sedan with a race car inside of it, which nobody had ever done before. And they had never been able to articulate exactly what they had, in fact, made themselves until they saw those words. And then they sort of helped them gel their own thinking. But Club Med, when we got Club Med, I, I had never been to a Club Med. But what I, everything I, I'd heard about Club Med, I didn't really, I wasn't really anxious to take the business. What had you heard? <laughs> well, several people in, in my company had been to Club Med and loved the idea. And convinced me we should take it. And so we take it. And we do all of our upfront stuff, the research and the meetings and whatnot, learning about the product. Well, the product was a communist vacation. You know, began in France in the days when all, you know, I guess young French intellectuals were communists or some version thereof. Mm -hmm. And it was originally invented by a German who came to, uh, I'm blanking on the founder's name now, um, Anyway, he came to the, he, he had an idea of a communist vacation. It would be tents on a beach. Mm-hmm. That was the vacation, original concept of the vacation, tents on a beach. So he went to the, the founder's father's company and they made canvas. And so he told them about the idea and he liked it so much that they, they bought the idea probably for $20 mm-hmm. <laughs> from the German and began Club Med. It became hugely successful, but the idea was, when you think about it, very communist. No, no better rooms, no better tables, no money, no TV, no newspapers. You know, none of that modern stuff. Mm-hmm. Very successful in France. People used to line up at like buying Super Bowl tickets. You know, they opened up the booking bookings for the vacation season coming, and people would literally line up around blocks. Wow. To get in. I mean, it was crazy successful. So they come to the United States. And of course, in, in France, you know, going topless on the beach was like no big deal. Everybody went topless on the beach. It wasn't considered, you know, racy. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, when they came to America with that idea, it was considered racy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, it, and it became hugely popular with a certain segment of the population. 
Uh, and they always got the best beaches. You know, they, that, that was what they they started with. It has to be an amazing beach. And uh, so they, they started and they were very successful. And then all of a sudden, you know, their business kind of leveled off because uh, because of who they were and uh, and the product that they had. And they decided they'd have to be more attractive to families if they wanted to grow. And so anyway, at this point, they came to us and we took the business and we did our upfront research and talking and discussing and meetings. And at the end of it, I was convinced that they had nothing that most Americans wanted in a vacation. <laughs> it was sort of the antithesis of what Americans wanted. There was no Hyatt, no, you know, none of the, the manufactured stuff that Americans wanted at the time. Anyway, now it comes time for the presentation, and we still don't know what to say. <laughs> well, like the day before or like the day of? Probably the week before. Uh-huh. And uh, now we're, you know, working late trying to figure out <laughs> what we're going to do. And it literally came to me in a, fl- in a flash of, of some kind of light uh, at about 1130 at, at night. Mm-hmm. And it was like a eureka. I found it. I said, I, I finally get this. I came out of my office and I said, I, I figured it out. I figured it out. What makes you want a vacation? What drives you nuts for 52 weeks of the year, 50 weeks of the year? Why do you need to get away from it? Why do you need to escape civilization? The TV sets, the better tables, the money, the newspapers, the bad bad stuff that makes us crazy the rest of the year. It's the antidote for that. It's the antidote for that. It's the antidote for civilization. And people said, oh, I don't know. That's maybe, I don't know. What, I'm not sure. That's, that's kind of an outrageous. I said, no, no, no. That's who they are. And that's what people re- will respond to. So we ended up, that was the campaign. We took it to the client. And, then, and the client was got it immediately and then said, oh, wait a minute. Civilization is a good thing, isn't it? And I said, no, not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the things that make you nuts and need a vacation during the rest of your year. That's what you offer. That's what you have. So they went with it and it was very successful. But it was the hardest problem, among the hardest problems I ever had to figure out. Did they know when they came to you, were they coming to you for a I feel like today... Someone goes and like they just want a slogan, a quick thing that they can slap up. And I, you talked a lot about geckos, and they, they don't really offer value. But I feel like you took such an interest in it, I, you but your whole firm. I feel like you were offering them strategy and a whole new way of looking at the world. That am I correct? Correct in concluding that you exemplified what it was like at the time. It wasn't just that you coming up with a whole lot of slogans or a whole lot of lingo. No. That theme line, uh, as we called it, now it's become a tagline, which probably accurately portrays the diminished importance mm-hmm. of uh, was what companies wanted to leave you with. It, it, it was the embodiment and and summary of their of who they were, their heart, their soul, what they represented, what they offered, who they were in the world, and why anybody should care. That that was all summed up in that theme line. And they spent an enormous amount of money to, you know, to expose those ideas to, to the marketplace. And they expressed them over and over and over again in all the media that was available at the time so that you would remember that. And they stayed with them uh, for years unless the company changed or the marketplace changed radically. And, you know, they had to change. Then, of course, you, you had to you know, go in a different direction, perhaps. But there was an understanding in the, of the simplicity of a great idea and how that and the persuasive qualities of a great idea 
it's, it's the basis of propaganda, you know, which which was the the uh, preceded advertising. But advertising is just propaganda in a different form. But that simple, clear idea that that uh, that reflects what people want. I mean, you can't tell people you can't propose something that in the end people don't want. You have to figure out what it is that you make and what's in that thing that you make or the idea that you have that that you can persuade people that that they want. Actually, persuade is probably the wrong word. It, it kind of you have to have an understanding both of the company and of the and of the culture. Uh, and how they meet. And, uh, and that's both a science and an art form. You know, the science part is research, but the science part doesn't get you to the future. It, it's a snapshot of where things are. So it's often misleading because it's, uh, you know, Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. I feel like the, the science gets you to where you can have that flash of insight. Without the science, you're not going to have the insight, but it itself is not the insight. Exactly. I think that's a good way of putting it. Uh, I mean, in some cases it may be, but big ideas are almost, uh, by definition, leaps into the future. Uh, Stephen Jobs, when he came out with the first Apple as a computer for the rest of us, well, that was incredible realization that if the computer market was going to grow and be useful to everybody, it had to be much simpler than it was. You had to have a three degrees from MIT to use a computer. And that was going to, you know, that, that was going to amount to like, you know, 1400 computers being sold. And, uh, and so in order, I mean, he could see the few, he understood, Stephen's genius was marketing. It wasn't technology. He saw the future and then he went out and found the, the, you know, the technology, which was sitting in Xerox park. They, they had all the stuff that, that started the Apple too. He just leased it from them. They didn't know what to do with it. It's been sitting there for years. They couldn't see the future. All they could see was what was. So big ideas are uh, are often irritating and often misunderstood. Small ideas are easily slid under the door because they don't threaten anybody. They don't propose the horrible specter of failure. Oh, my God, what if this thing doesn't work? I'm out of a job or I'll lose my company. But they're the things that change the world. Big ideas in, in every category. You know, there, there's a behind every big idea. Every big idea from without exception is a single human being thinking creatively, thinking in a way that nobody thought before. So one of the my favorite examples is the invention of of the farm. People went around the world killing animals and, you know, (laughs) running through forests. Which was a which was the way life hunter gatherers, that's what they were called. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of those hunter gatherers, and they know where he is, it was in the Fertile Crescent. They have they have found his farm and and they found him, his skeleton, at any rate. They know or have a pretty good idea who invented the idea of a farm. It was a person. And probably what happened is he was wandering through the forest looking to kill something for dinner. And he stumbled across wild chickpeas, which existed in those days. And, uh, and and some light bulb went off and he said, boy, I mean, if I could transplant these into my garden at home, <laughs> I wouldn't have to run around looking for animals to kill. And with all the advantages that, you know, gave him as a human being and other people picked it up. And we had the first agricultural revolution, which changed the world. But it was one person thinking creatively. That can happen in, you know, world-changing ideas like the farm or the 
you know, the the steam engine or the whatever can change the world-changing ideas. But big mm-hmm. ideas can also occur in talking about a company. Like a big idea can happen anywhere. But you have to be looking for it. You can't be settling. You know, I, one of my, I hate to pick on Toyota all the time, but this is one of the great manufacturing companies in the world. They spend a billion and a half dollars per year in the U.S. market minus production and talent, so say $2 billion mm-hmm. per year, to say, to leave you with the idea, let's go places. That's their slogan now, their tagline. Yeah. Their- and it's been that way for 12 years. And I have to wonder, this great company, is this the most important thing you can say about yourself? Let's go places. It could be a skateboard manufacturer. It could be the New York Transit Authority. It could be anything with wheels. You have a choice. You can say something unimportant and leave people with nothing, or you can say something important, and why wouldn't you want to do that? Then you risk becoming a commodity if I don't know who you are. And the sad truth is that a lot of people, people running these companies don't know who they are. Uh, And I won't use names, but I was working, I did some consulting work for a large, brilliant American company who has been in business now about 167 years, literally, and has obviously changed and changed and changed and changed over that period of time. They hired me to help them figure out who they were, who Mm -hmm. they are. And so I spent a lot of time talking to the, I think it was seven, eight top people from the CEO, you know, down to heads of departments and whatnot. I think there were seven or eight of them that they've considered the key people in the company. Mm-hmm. And I would have these hour, two hour long meetings with them individually. And without exception, I would get to a point where I said, well, how would you sum up who you are and why anybody should care? And there was a moment of, you know, confusion. And then they said, well, you know, I'm not sure. I know I used to know who we who, who we are, but I'm not, I'm not certain anymore. And that's from the CEO down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've criticized the advertising business, but the, but the check writers are every bit as guilty as the, guilty as the copywriters. And volumes have been written on the lack of creative thinking in American companies. And by the way, the, the golden age of American advertising coincided with the golden age, arguably, of American business mm-hmm. when it was at its most creative best. And when they, when they became Wall Street obsessed and quarterly earnings obsessed, they began not focusing on their customers, but Wall Street and the stock prices. Uh, and they were, it's probably the worst thing that ever happened to, to this country because we're, we're killing capitalism at the moment is killing capitalism. It's causing these gigantic wage uh, gaps. You know, the middle, our middle class hasn't had a raise in 40 years. Usually that's the stuff of revolution. That usually precedes the revolution. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, we have this wonderful system of checks and balances, but right now the, it's not functioning the way it's supposed to. And from time to time, you know, democracy, American, American democracy and capitalism, I prefer to call it free enterprise. It's a much friendlier word, <laughs> capitalism, uh, are codependents. You can't have one without the other. So uh, if we and right now the kids in school are saying capitalism is the enemy. Look what it's done to this country. That's very dangerous talk, because if we eliminate capitalism, we eliminate essentially the American idea of democracy. 
And so it has to be slapped back and changed, which has happened before. This isn't the first time. You know, we're in the second Gilded Age. We we went through, we survived the first Gilded Age when the the robber barons of that time were ruining the country and almost bankrupted. And, you know, Roosevelt came in at the end of the Depression uh, and used it to redistribute wealth is essentially what he did. And it was a pretty radical concept. And then the war came along and he could still further redistribute wealth. And we came out of the Second World War with a thriving middle class. And the middle class is what, what builds the country. You know, when, when we when two people have more wealth than the whole bottom half of the country, you really have a problem. And something has to be done to change that. So, or not, you know, we'll have to see. Because the the idea of America, democ- American democracy and free enterprise is still in its experimental stage. We don't really know whether it's going to survive. I mean, our enemy is, or let's say our competitor is China. It's it's not Vladimir Putin over there. It was an economy about the size of Italy. <laughs> it's It's China. China has the advantage of an autocratic, capitalist system and we have a democratic capitalist system one can be very fast and one is very slow by definition to adapt to change you know the chinese can say okay this is where the world is going you guys go over there and do that because that's what we got to do we have to start convincing people (laughs) that, that the world is changing and they have to do this I mean, that's our ultimate challenge to see whether what we have here works. But if we lose what we have here works, we use we lose, in my opinion, you know, the greatest gift, the greatest consumer benefit ever given to the human beings on the planet. So I'm I'm reading what you're saying, frustration with how things are going, but it's almost is disgust too strong a word of of what's happening. But it's not you're not dwelling there. Because a lot of people just complain. Because I, I hear a sense of it's not just hope because I think you don't want to watch, you don't want to hope for the best. I think you, I, I sense not activism, but intent to participate in changing things. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, uh, I'm involved in a project that I can't talk too much about at the moment, but it has to do with the lack of understanding of what the American idea is by Americans, mm-hmm. because we haven't taught it in the school. We don't teach civics in school anymore and haven't for several generations now. There's not even a requirement in 15 states to have any civics education. So we have we have people, particularly the younger the younger the generation, the worse it is. So the millennials and Gen Zers are almost totally illiterate when it comes to civics education and the understanding of America. The Annenberg Group at University of Pennsylvania recently, last year, released a m- massive study on civic illiteracy in this country. Jefferson, who isn't my favorite founder for several reasons, nevertheless said several brilliant things along the way. Uh, One of them was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I guess, uh, only uh, an educated uh, and informed citizenry deserves its own government. That's a very simple statement that is very profound in its implications. And in fact, the Founders of this country started the public school system for for one real reason, and that's to educate the people, educate the citizens. And education and and participation are 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 this participation is the result of education. So we have an we have a detached, illiterate electorate citizen, and 
you know, millennials who are now approaching 45 and Gen Zers who are the young, the young end, they're over 37% of the vote and growing. And, and they know nothing about the country. So they're sitting there saying, well, David Axelrod, who I'm involved with on this thing, teaches at the University of Chicago's graduate classes. And he says the kids come in, yep, University of Chicago graduate students are among the brightest kids yeah. we have in this country. Uh, they come in at the beginning and they say, well, why should we save this country, this idea? It's not working. It isn't working in anything. It isn't working in government. It isn't working in education. It isn't working in, in civil rights. It isn't working in free enterprise. It's not working. Why should we save it? Why should we just throw it out? And uh, he says, well, okay, fine. That's, you know, that's a point of view. Tell me precisely what you know about this country and, and how it works. And, of course, they know nothing. And it's not because they're stupid. It's because we haven't taught them. And, and so they're ignorant. Uh, the, the Annenberg study is breathtaking. 20%, I think, of uh, 17%, something like that, of college graduates think that Judge Judy sits on the Supreme Court. They can't name three branches of government. They don't know what the Bill of Rights is. They don't know what the Emancipation Proclamation is. They think that Dwight Eisenhower was a Civil War general. I mean, it's breathtaking. That is breathtaking. So it has to change. And the educational system, according to the Annenberg people, will just changing the education system will not solve the problem. We have to find other ways of, of involving people. Unfortunately or fortunately, our system depends on people being involved and literate. They have to know, then they don't know. Okay, so it's our problem that they don't know. It's not their problem. It's not their fault. It's their problem because they are going to live in the world that we're going to be gone from. I'm going to interject here. I can't stand when I hear people say, I see signs in the next generation of them, like they will solve the problems that we created. And when I hear someone say, an old person like me saying, the next generation will solve our problems. I'm hearing, not me, not now, someone else, some other time. Yeah, that's a valid fear. The further you get from the World War II generation, the, the more illiterate they are and the more detached they are. So when we came out of World War II, we knew what we were fighting for. It was the ultimate good against evil. And we all gathered together around this idea of America with all of its problems. And, uh, and that God knows we have plenty of problems. I can't remember who it was. It was an African-American writer recently said, we, we, being black Americans, have given this country love, but this country hasn't loved us back. And one of the things, I hope, that's come out of the whole George Floyd, you know, Black Lives Matter era that we're in, is an awareness on people like you and me of what black people face in everyday life. I have to admit that I was sort of figuring, well, you know, there are a lot of black people doing really well and the main big problems are over and they're going to solve the problems and it's going to be fine. It takes still more time. But when you hear these people talking, people like Jay Johnson, you know, who was the first secretary of Homeland Security, a massively educated, brilliant human being, talking about how he has to have a talk with his son about going out and the dangers of being in a car and getting picked up by the police. And you're thinking, what? (laughs) What? We don't get up in the morning with that kind of fear because we're white, only because we're white. No other reason. 
So I hope it's made pe- enough people sensitive to what we force these people to, how do we force these people to live and how unfair it is and how detrimental it is to the country, not just to them, to all of us. I don't know. That's a whole other subject. But I think America is the biggest idea that you know has ever been. Our founders made constructed this country to be changed. They intended it to be changed. They knew that what they were writing wasn't perfect, and they knew it was full of compromises in order to get the damn thing signed. Otherwise, they were going to be thirteen individual countries, you know, forever at war with each other. And they they did it. Uh, the, our first advertising agency, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, uh-huh. uh, wrote a wrote a cam- an advertising campaign called the Federalist Papers. Uh, and they published it in the social media of its time, newspapers and pamphlets, and it worked. If you haven't read them, and most people haven't, uh, they're beautifully written and they're simple, and they totally explain this country and what and what they thought they were doing, what they intended to do. I mean, it's the biggest idea anybody's ever had in terms of human benefit, and. They meant it to be changed. They didn't mean it to be changed quickly or rashly. They meant to slow things down. Uh, they were as afraid of what the people might do as they were of what a president that wanted to be king might do. So they created this Rube Goldberg <laughs> form of checks and balances, which have worked up until now, not without fault, uh, nor will it ever be without fault. They say toward a more perfect union, toward we will always be toward. We were. All, we will always be a work in progress. Jefferson again had it in his head that we should rip up, literally rip up the Constitution every generation and start a new, write a new Constitution so that it would remain relevant to the following generation. Which, of course, would was a crazy idea and would be total anarchy uh, and confusion. But the purpose is is valid. And Thomas Paine had. Much the same thoughts. Most of the founders had much the same thoughts. That what we're writing now is only a work in progress and needs to be constantly revised in order to remain, remain relevant, uh, so that it can be passed down from generation to generation throughout time, as Jefferson said. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive: your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks, and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I want to be sensitive to your time. And I feel like this was, if this was a play, this was act one in which you've described the characters and the situation. And it's a nice way of putting it. Would you come back and and continue this conversation? (laughs) Because I'd love to, I'd love to, as you can tell, it's my favorite topic. (laughs) And I feel like it's just getting started because I feel like you're laying the groundwork and because I don't hear someone, I don't hear complaining and I don't hear there's a lot, a lot of things that you said, if they came from someone who was not at the heart of, I don't know what to call it, consumer culture is the word that comes to mind, but I don't think that's the right word. But Persuasion. Persuasion, but also it's not, I mean, you were trying to sell stuff. You were helping companies sell things. 
Yeah. The idea of America has to be sold as if it were a consumer product. And that's exactly what the Federalist Papers did. I think I hear from you it's time for new federal Federalist Papers. Time for new Federalist Papers. Like, does it, like the, was it Annenberg that did the study? That You know, in order to persuade. Persuasion is not coercion. Or convincing, yeah. Yeah. In order for me to convince you to see things my way, I have to first convince you that what I'm talking about is a value to you. And if it isn't a value, there's nothing I can do besides point a gun at your forehead that will make you want to do what I want you to do. <laughs> the basis of all advertising, all propaganda, all everything can be of all persuasion can be boiled down to one simple sentence. What is it? What is the one thing that I could say to you that if I said it would make you want to buy it? That's all that it's about. But and as simple as that sounds, I first have to understand where you are. And may, you may not know where you are, by the way. It goes back to Henry Ford. If I asked you what they you know, wanted, they would have said faster horses. Because nobody, the idea of a motor car didn't exist. So, of course, they're going to say faster horses. <laughs> what else are they going to say? My message to the millennials and people who are sick and tired and fed up, you want to change the country? Fine, change it. It was meant to be changed. But before you can get in and drive the car, you got to know where to put the key. You have to know something about. You have to know something about the product. You have to know something about the country before you can change it. You have to know how it's meant to be changed and what you can do. And what's the benefit to you? The benefit to you is maintaining and conserving the greatest product ever invented in the history of mankind. You know that's what's in it for you. Because if you lose it, we can go through what happens if you lose it. I mean, you know, if you care about history at all, we will repeat it. Unless we uh, unless we manage to change what we what we have at the moment, and it's there to be done. But in order to do it, you got to do it. You can't leave it to somebody else, as you said. I have a day job; somebody else will do it. Well, no, we see we see the result of that now. I mean, I don't want to get political in this, but Donald Trump is the ultimate result of what I'm talking about. An informed and engaged electorate would never have elected Donald Trump as president. For a variety of reasons. Forget the fact that he may be clinically insane. He's unqualified, massively unqualified, to be the CEO of the most powerful engine on earth, right? And by the way, if I'm wrong, if if they were people were civically educated and were civilly engaged and still elected Donald Trump, then I would say, well, okay, it's over. <laughs> but I think it was a he's a symptom, not a not a cause. He either stumbled into it by accident or was smart enough to see the anger and the dissatisfaction at several different levels. So, you know, it, it goes back to BMW or Club Med. You know, what are you making? Why should people care about it? What is the most, what is the one thing I could say about this that if I said it would make you want to buy it? Can I leave that as the cliffhanger? That yeah. I believe that you've thought about that and have some answers. And if we, if we have you back a second time, then, then we can explore this. Can we well, do that? Well, I'd love to. I enjoy you. <laughs> I'm flattered. Uh, and also, I, you know, I'm working on this book, which is, I mean, I finished the first draft. And you know, I can use, when you're talking about what you did with BMW and what you did with Club Med, I'm thinking, oh my God, I would love to sit with someone who could crystallize and, and help with that. I, I guess we talked about that before. 
sometime, it probably when we're not recording, but maybe when we are recording, I'd love to share with you the depths of what I'm working on. And, and by analogy, I think I have something like uh, a race car engine inside a, inside of a sedan that's, that's never, never been done before. looks like an old Corvair, right? It was a completely different change of, it was a complete change, but the, but the essence of that change, and then we will get off is, um, so research would have told us that the that the market for BMW, because of its cost, it, was, it cost as much as a Lincoln or a Cadillac or any of the any of the luxury cars that Americans thought constituted an expensive car. Uh, it looked like an old Corvair, and uh, but it cost the same as a Cadillac or a Lincoln, and they were over chromed, overblown, wallowing living rooms. <laughs> We could discuss the rides. examples of, of autom- the art of the automobile. Uh, but that was the American concept. Now, research would have said, okay, your audience is those people, fat, rich, you know, country club characters that are going to buy a Cadillac or a Lincoln. That's what research told us. But we intuitively felt that something else was happening in the world, and it was eventually called the yuppie. We call them affluent activists. Uh, the New York Times said we invented the yuppie. We didn't. Somebody else invented that word. We called them affluent activists. But who they were were young people who were, it was the beginning of physical fitness and eating right and high performance, everything. And that was the yuppie. And we said, since a car is a pretty personal expression of, of you, it can run everywhere from, I don't care about cars, so I'll buy a you know a Ford whatever. <laughs> I care a lot about cars. I'm going to buy a Ferrari at the other end of the scale. Well, the yuppies see nothing of themselves reflected in a Cadillac or a Lincoln. Nothing. It's it's abhorrent to them. The whole concept of a Cadillac or a Lincoln is abhorrent to them. You are building the car that they would love if they only knew what the hell you were building. Because to look at it, it looks like an old Corvair, Right. That's Those old ones, the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Crappy-looking cars. But you put a race car inside of it. You've done something nobody's ever done before. That embodies the uppie. Right? <laughs> that is who they are. So that's who we have to talk to. That's where the, the origin of the ultimate driving machine, which my own partner said was the wrong thing to say. I had to convince them for about two weeks because they said, I don't know, ultimate driving machine? Machine? <laughs> driving machine? <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, that understatement. Trust me, trust me, it's right. Yeah. <laughs> so when we showed it to the engineers in Munich, they went berserk. They, I didn't have to explain anything to them. Yes, it's <laughs> what we <built>. Yeah. <laughs> that was an instant sale. Anyway, it's now I think going into its forty seventh year, forty eighth year. What I wrote it in Christmas of uh, December of nineteen seventy four. However long that's been. I was almost thinking that, you know, when you talk, when you said the slogan for Toyota, that maybe BMW would say, "Oh, good, our competitor is still off." You know, they, yeah, of course. I bet they actually would prefer a more solid competitor. You know, they have competition, but it, it's uh, you know, I mean, it's fragmented now. In those days, you know, lots of potential competition all came from Europe, and they hadn't really come here in, in any serious way. Mercedes. When they, they came in, they sort of had to adapt to the Lincoln and the Cadillac syndrome. But Mercedes, well, Mercedes went through a different, difficult period when they were when they owned Chrysler uh, and they started to become Chrysler. Mercedes is a great car company, but they're made for a different reason. I own a Mercedes. I own an old one and I own a new one. Uh, they're great cars, but they're made for a different reason than a BMW. 
you can engineer a personality into a car. The personality engineered into BMW is for people who really like the feel of the road, who like the sensation of driving, who are high performance. A Mercedes is built for people who want a great car, but they don't want to feel the road. They don't want a sense of the road. They want to be sort of isolated from all that stuff. Uh, and they're still building. And they and that's great. You know, nothing wrong with a Mercedes. It just has to do with what you want. But, you know, there's a, I'd love to get my teeth into Audi. That is a, is a perfect example of a terrific product, totally undefined. I defy anybody to tell me what an Audi is. Yeah. Now that you mention it, yes. What is an Audi? Best you can say is a German car. When, you know, for some people that's enough. But what is an Audi? I don't know. I don't know. Why hasn't somebody figured out what to say about an Audi? And they, they say, they've said a lot of different things, none of which add up to anything. You know, I have no idea what an Audi is. Nobody does. People who own them don't know what they are. And they're a good car. Nothing wrong with an Audi. You know, Lincoln is the power of sanctuary. I have no idea. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? Somebody, some research said people get into the cars and they feel that this is blah, blah, blah. And so they've taken the power of sanctuary. Uh, Cadillac has had, I don't know, 15 different theme lines in the last 15 months, I think. <laughs> Each one is more inane and meaningless than the last one. They're completely lost. And they had a moment when GM was being rediscovered in Cadillac that they could have done something. But they don't know who they are, so they're built. They're building these. I don't know what it is. I don't even know how to describe it. It's an expensive Chevy. I don't know what the hell is it, Cadillac. Anyway, big ideas. It's the heart of every great company. The heart of every great culture. Heart of every great movie, book. You know, the great ones leave you with something. The great ones change the way you think. When you get read, get done reading, To Kill a Mockingbird, your thinking has changed. When you get done reading Marx's Das Kapital, <laughs> your thinking has changed. Maybe maybe not for the good, but it causes you to think different. And that's what a big idea does. And, uh, you know, the guy that invented the farm got hunter-gatherers to think different. <laughs> and we're going to get people to think different, too, now. If we don't, we're in trouble. You know, when Franklin Roosevelt started the New Deal, somebody said to him, Mr. President, if this thing works— you will be seen as the greatest president in the history of this country. And his reply was, well, if it doesn't work, I will be the last. <laughs> and I think that's where we are again. We had this little thing called the Civil War, which is a bit disruptive. <laughs> I, I had to make a joke on that. that um, the great Civil War general, Dwight Eisenhower, said, yes. <laughs> I said, I don't remember the exact, his style of leadership, has been very influential to me. He said, I, I'm not, this isn't word for word, but leadership is getting the other guy to do your thing for his reason, which means you have to know his reason. He also said, I forget exactly how it's something like leadership by coercion. That's not leadership. That's abuse. Yeah. I, I know both of those. And you're absolutely right. They're beautiful statements. Yeah. Well, that's kind of behind everything we're saying. I mean, thinkers throughout time have had these same thoughts. They've just expressed them in different ways, but, uh, we have to rediscover ourselves again, yet again. But, you know, the Chinese system of autocracy or the Russian system of whatever, czar, I guess, uh, doesn't allow for change. Yeah, they're going the other way. She, yeah, he's extending his 
rulership. Yeah. But I want to be careful because I, I made a rule for myself never to, I don't want people to think when I spend time with Josh, I'm late for the next thing. And we're, we're well past when you said to stop. I know, I know. You, you got me involved, but uh, it was fun. We'll do it again. I guess after we, after we stop recording, if, if we, before we hang up, uh, I propose scheduling the next conversation and we'll pick up there. Send me some times. That's the best thing to do. Okay. Well, Martin Pierce, thank you very much. And thank you. It's always fun. <laughs> Have a great weekend. <laughs> How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.